we just are noticing that this is happening more and more with our patients that actually they don't seem that unwell and they present like as if they you know they've just walked up a couple of stairs and they come in and you just look at their sort of status and they are in a very very bad way I'm Dr. Rupi and this is the Doctor's Kitchen podcast, the show about food, medicine, lifestyle and how to improve your health today. And my guest, Dr. Atam Singh, was meant to be coming on and talking about the use of CBD in healthcare. He's a clinical associate of the London Pain Clinic and consultant in pain medicine. He actually qualified in anesthesia before becoming a professional trained in pain management. And so we were going to be talking about how CBD uh, is used in pain, anxiety, what exactly CBD is, where it comes from, what the legislation is, uh, and uh, being one of the few medical registered practitioners using CBD in clinic, um, he would have been an ideal person to talk about. We will talk about that subject um, with uh, Dr. Atom at another point. But today, I want to talk about him and his experience of COVID-19 thus far, because he is one of the thousands of doctors that have been drafted straight into emergency rotors, staffing intensive care units in the UK, looking after the sickest patients with uh, COVID-19. Um, I, I do want to exercise some caution for anyone listening to this. I think it can get quite overwhelming considering the barrage of news right now. And the first part of our conversation is a real um, a, a gut-wrenching look at the current scenario surrounding COVID-19 and its management, his personal experience on the front line. Um, and I would say if you don't want to listen to more of the same thing or it, pro- it provokes anxiety, then please uh, uh, either listen to another one of our wonderful podcasts or um, skip towards the second half where we actually talk about the optimistic outlook uh, and what we can learn from this pandemic. In today's episode, we talk about how his job has completely changed over the last two weeks from having somewhat of a portfolio career where he does a lot of elective surgery um, and uh, uh, pain management in in clinic and and seeing a, a real different genre of patients across his working day Um, now his specialty is solely related to treating the sickest covid patients because of his unique set of skills we talk about the pressing issues regarding drugs and oxygen supplies in the uk Um, it's really thinking a couple of steps ahead beyond the ppe and ventilator situation the current treatments for covid and what's actually going on in the front line there's a lot of talk about Um, different medications that we've had in the past, uh, vaccines and antiviral drugs. But um, he's of the opinion that that isn't going to be coming anytime soon. Um, Coping mechanisms. And I think uh, at this point in the pod, this is where uh, it will resonate with a lot of people and give everyone beyond just the medics and medical students listening to this um, and healthcare professionals uh, across the board. It gives a it gives us some some structure, some frameworks as to how to get through day to day challenges, whether it be in medicine or outside. 
Um, we talk a bit about what things have best prepared him uh, for this in terms of training, technology and, and calm techniques, the positives that can potentially come from this. And uh, like I said, that's in the second half and things to look forward to as well. I also want to say that as uh, medics speaking to each other, we don't really shy away from the harshness and the reality of the situation. Anything that we do talk about is with the utmost respect for the structure of the healthcare system right now. Um, It's not to disrespect patients. It's not to make light uh, of the situation at all, but sometimes we do need things to look forward to in terms of uh, a light at the end of the tunnel, uh, things that keep us going as medics. Um, So yeah, just just to point out that, you know, I don't want this conversation to be uh, construed as making light of a situation where it's definitely not that. It's uh, just uh, two medics essentially speaking to each other about their experiences on the front line thus far. Um, we will be re-recording an episode on CBD with Dr. Atom when possible, but right now I think we're just going to be concentrating on these sorts of podcasts as well as uh, maintaining a positive attitude to everything. Please do check out my guest's um, clinic uh, in the future, the thelondonpainclinic.com, um, and you can find them on socials on the Doctor's Kitchen uh, forward slash podcast webpage. Um, And plus, give this a five-star review. Leave us a comment if you found it useful. We'd really, really value the feedback. And uh, join the newsletter. We're going to be giving you uh, recipes, but also tips to help you get through this situation. And lots of YouTube tutorials about breathing, about lifestyle, about uh, staples and use of food to make sure that we are healthier when we come out of this. And that's something that uh, I've always been passionate about, but I'm particularly passionate about now. On to our chat. So, uh, Atom, thanks so much for uh, making time today. I know you've got an incredibly busy schedule. Uh, What's funny is that we were meant to be talking about a completely different topic, uh, CBD, um, considering your background in pain medicine. Um, But since we had a chat, I think probably maybe two months ago, the whole world has turned upside down. So I thought maybe you could give us a little bit of background into what you were doing prior to COVID uh, and how your role has, has changed now. Uh, so yeah, it really it has been a massive change and uh, something that was really unpredicted uh, and unprecedented. Well, uh, before this was happening, we were I was working as a, a consultant in pain medicine in northwest London in an area near Watford. Uh, I lived just outside Watford, and uh, I was had a little kind of clinic in the hospital doing chronic pain sort of medicine. Uh, that was included in that job a title. It was doing acute pain medicine, so dealing with patients on the in 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 the hospital, but also on top of that, holding clinics, doing procedures, looking after patients, uh, elderly patients with their chronic pain needs. This was intermittently sort of like spent some time down in central London doing some pain uh, sort of sessions and theatre work down in central London, uh, particularly in the London Pain Clinic, which was you know really really kind of busy. I think we did a really good job. We provided a really, really good service. Um, and on top of that, uh, just as a side thing, which is what I was trained as, I was doing a, li- a couple of days of anaesthetics a day, a, a couple of uh, couple of sessions of anaesthetics in a week, um, uh, which is my base sort of topic, which was my base speciality. And from that developed my specialism in chronic pain. 
So it's a really lovely kind of environment, kind of doing a bit of this, of anesthetics, as well as that, dealing with chronic pain issues. Um, and, it, and, it, and it was busy. And at the time when all this COVID-19 broke out, uh, just before that, um, there was the most recent, well, one of the biggest changes in sort of legislation regarding pain medicines was the kind of legalization of cannabis to be prescribed um, uh, for chronic pain, condi uh, chronic pain conditions. Now, Clearly, there was a bit of um, prob uh, there was a bit of kind of um, restrictions on its use, uh, particularly because of its use within the NHS and also the cost of it. It was prohibitive for the NHS to provide it. We started to see a lot of pickup in the private sector for its use, uh, and having had some experience with its use in different countries in America and Canada. Um, we noted, and these countries clearly noted its benefit in these chronic pain individuals. And hence, I think the UK was a little bit late on picking this up. But however, uh, November of 2019, it legalized the use of it in sort of, sort of uh, specific conditions. But clearly, this was gently opening up sort of little clinics. We were opening up to uh, patients' use, and we noted that there was definitely a, 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 an increasing number of people who were just saying, could I try it? Could I try it? And, uh, and I was sort of in the sort of midst of that, trying to sort of work out how we were supposed to first, first of all, get it into the country, then trying to dispense it, and then, you know, reviewing how these patients were, were doing with it. So it was in the very early stages of its use. And then, of course, it all changed and we were right in the middle of it and then it all changed and COVID-19 came along with its, you know, ugly head and changed everything. So what we're seeing now is that my sort of role has changed. Um, we have unfortunately had to cancel all elective uh, clinics, all elective procedures. Uh, most private sector hospitals have had to, have been commandeered by the NHS uh, for its use to deal with kind of uh, elective patients and trying to deal with time critical patients and hence this problem of pain medicine unfortunately has taken a back seat. We are now being uh, rotated into an emergency rotated uh, to deal with all these critically ill patients in intensive care so there has been a massive swap round or you know switch over from dealing with chronic pain patients where time critical problems were much more of a kind of a sedate manner now dealing with critically ill patients who are, as you are aware, and everybody is aware, are, are really are dying and are really are suffering as a result of the COVID-19 virus. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in there that I really want to pick out. I want to just start off with, I know a lot of our listeners are medics, and so this might be teaching people to suck heads, but I just want to, to for the, those who don't understand exactly what the role of an anesthetist is, to understand what is the practice of, uh, what is the practice of anesthetics and uh, how does that apply to the role that you now have when managing COVID-19 patients? I think I think any doctor who has worked within uh, a hospital setting uh, is fully aware of what the anaesthetist does. But clearly, outside of the knowledge of hospitals, I think the majority of people's uh, view on anaesthetists is that they get is that they put patients to sleep for operations. Um, and I think that's definitely a major part of our job. So when a patient has an, a surgery or elective surgery or emergency surgery, an anaesthetist is involved to provide that patient with anaesthetic, 
uh, be it a general anesthetic when you put to sleep, but also regional anesthetic to help with various problems in certain parts of the body uh, and allow the patient to undergo that surgery in a degree of um, comfort and, and to reduce pain experienced post-operatively. However, the other side of anaesthetics um, is something that I probably is not well known. I, mean, I, could be, I could be wrong, but we are dealing with the critically ill patients. And I think that's, that's the thing. That's, that's the part that is the most stressful uh, and, and requires the most amount of intensive input by an anaesthetist. So we get people coming in with chest infections. We get people coming in with, you know, for example, chest pains and heart, heart, heart attacks and things like that. Or if you've broken a bone, these uh, sort of things, if dealt with, can be dealt with without the need of an anaesthetist. But when the patient gets particularly unwell, uh, as a result of the injury that they have suffered, um, there is uh, the, uh, the anaesthetist is there uh, to be called when that is required, when it's required to deal with the critically, you know, really unwell patients uh, and, and to deal with their problem in whole, you know, in whole. So that might include having to put them uh, to support their breathing, put them on ventilators. Uh, and to aid that, we put in, we, we call this sort of at intubation which i think probably has been heard about on the tv a lot and that is basically the idea of putting in a tube into the mouth and into the lungs but also on top of that we have to provide um, access to the body we have to put lines in uh, that might include a, an access into the sort of central vein sort of capacitance of the patient but also it might require the patient to be put on um, renal dialysis med um, treatments it might require, you know, intensive sort of antibiotic therapy. It might also require support for the heart. You know, uh, should that patient be particularly very ill, uh, we are the patient, we are the kind of specialism or the doctors that have to deal with dealing with the heart and trying to support the heart in its best as it possibly can. Now, all this sort of care is done in an intensive care unit. And I think this is what's been brought out quite uh, a lot in the news recently is that, you know, these critically ill patients uh, now as a result of these patients experiencing this COVID-19 sort of virus, I think the the kind of scrutiny of the intensive care is, is really under the spotlight. It really has shown that the number of patients that we are getting, which are critically ill, that require intensive care therapy, predominantly ventilatory help, as in helping the lungs. The number of beds out there in intensive care for us to deal with are, are lacking. And I think that's that's the major problem at the moment. Yeah. And so your day-to-day -day has completely transformed from doing that mixture of different, um, it's almost like a portfolio career you have uh, in anesthetics. You know, you're doing a bit of elective work, a bit of pain management. It's a really good mixture of patients you'd be seeing as well from critically ill to stable, etc. But your day-to-day -day now, is it purely emergency work now where you're uh, working within the NHS? Um, it, it, it is so as has been as been made clear by a lot of my colleagues and this includes surgeons and dermatologists we're all being rotated in every single one of us to do emergency care now obviously other people's skill sets are are different obviously the intensive care um consultants who are specifically trained into intensive care which we all are as a trainee 
are basically the front, you know, we are the ones who are basically trying to deal with these very, very ill patients. The number of intensive care consultants prior to the COVID-19 were, were, were dreadfully low. <clears throat> but now, given the fact that there's been a huge increase in the number of patients requiring intensive care therapy, anaesthetists, as in the ones who are providing anaesthetic care for patients going in for general elective surgery, or obstetrics providing labor anesthesia for patients who are having you know, babies, and obviously chronic pain consultants who are obviously dealing with chronic pain issues, our base speciality is anesthetics. So we understand the ideas of dealing with patients who need ventilatory support, need inotropic support for their heart and all those sorts of things. So we are the first ones who have been brought into the fold to deal with intensive care. So absolutely every day now is dealing in, with intensive care. So our whole rotor has been, our old rotor has been thrown out and a new emergency rotor has been uh, brought in and uh, that it does include uh, involving you know doing nights on call which has been quite some time since I've done nights on call uh, but also during the day doing long days and spending you know all the time dealing with these critically ill patients on critical care. Yeah I feel like it's inspiring a new generation of medics and uh, other academics to go into epidemiology and anesthetics and intensive care training you know this I hope uh, if we to put a spin on what is uh, an incredibly unprecedented situation um, is that we will get a lot more people inspired to go into medicine and, and perhaps the underfilled positions as well. I completely agree with you. I think this um, this whole sort of thing that's going on around globally, I think, I hope, out of the sort of stark nature of what's happening around us, I, th I feel that some good will come. And if this is not going to uh, sort of persuade people who are on the border of doing, uh, deciding whether or not they want to do medicine, I, I would say that this will do it. We hear a lot on the news, uh, and certainly people who aren't um, privy to what's actually going on on the front lines about the management of COVID patients. You've talked a little bit about what your role is in intensive care with providing inotropic support, so drugs to support the heart and, uh, and uh, circulatory system, as well as ventilation. What is uh, challenging about this particular uh, virus creating critically ill patients uh, and what is the main issue what are the main issues that you're experiencing uh, when dealing with the most unwell uh, so I think what we've noticed recently and let's be clear this is a very very new sort of virus and we're learning things every day about it um, is that the, the the quickness and the speed it takes hold of somebody the virus seems to sort of hang around in the body for, you know, a, you know, the whole process, if somebody's going to recover, tends to take in the region of about two weeks, maybe even three weeks. I don't think the fully fatigue type symptoms and tiredness symptoms may last a little bit longer. But we normally see the sort of prodrome lasting maybe a few days. Then we see what 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 clearly people are reporting is that they have an initial sort of unwellness. They feel they feel sort of feverish. They feel particularly very tired. Uh, they have a sore throat, and that normally, when that starts, takes on in the you know they realise it over a period of about forty eight hours. After that forty eight hour period, there's normally a lull, which normally lasts about three to four days, maybe five days. And then what seems to happen is that there's the second 
sort of effect. And it is sort of like the five to seven day period that people start to complain of respiratory problems and chest problems. And we notice that it is that during that period of time that they become very sick very quickly. Now, that's not always the case, but that's something that we've noticed on sort of individual cases that normally they present with the shortness of breath and the respiratory symptoms normally about a week before they started to feel ill, um, you know, the initial symptoms. And during that lull period, they're just not, they're okay, but they're not feeling great. But during that sort of seven day, that, that towards the end of the seven day period, the, the quickness with which that virus takes its effect is just, um, it's really, really kind of, uh, you know, breathtaking. And I mean, you know, pardon the pun, but the patient really does start to feel short of breath. And it is during that period of time that we see the patients coming into the hospital. Now, the problem is, is that we've not seen this before where this shortness of breath occurs so quickly. And we are taken aback by when we take x-rays of these patients and we take um, sort of oxygen concentrations of these patients when we put the kind of probe on their finger, they will be breathing relatively quickly, but they are kind of relatively not in the same way that you would typically expect with patients who have chronic long-term, you know, respiratory diseases like patients who have had long-term smoking, COPD, for example, or, or somebody with a typical pneumonia. They seem quite calm. They may well be breathing quite quickly, but they don't seem that out of breath. When you look at an x-ray, their x-ray is full of disease. And when you put a probe on their finger to determine how much oxygen they're getting around the body, it is in the low 80s. Now, normal sort of saturations are in the 95, 96, 97, possibly, you know, probably in 99. But we're getting these patients when you're putting a probe on the finger and they're in the low 80s. And it is remarkable to see how this virus has taken effect on the patient so quickly. Yes. Some of the uh, x-rays that I've seen in emergency department, people presenting pretty early on have actually been quite frightening. Um, and, you know, no, pre no pre-morbid conditions as well. It's, yeah, it's, it's not a great sight. It's, 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 it, it, and we just are noticing that this is happening more and more with our patients that actually they don't seem that unwell. And they present like as if they, you know, they've just walked up a couple of stairs and they come in and you just look at their sort of status and they are in a very, very bad way. Now, the way that we're dealing with it is so different to way what we we normally deal with these things. It is now A&E recesses and A&E recess departments full of these patients who seem relatively quite calm, you know, breathing quite quickly, but just looking at their monitors from the sort of central console, just noticing that their saturations are about 80, and there's a 79% and 82%. We're just not used to seeing so many ill people in one place. Yeah. And previously, we were led to believe that uh, this is a disease primarily affecting the vulnerable, um, uh, the elderly. Um, from your anecdotal and intensive uh, experience thus far, is that the case? That are you seeing it primarily affecting older generations or have there been some other experiences of yours? I, I think, I think, yeah, I think that's the kind of impression that we're getting from the the press. And it is clear that, that they are definitely more vulnerable. There is no doubt that, 
as you get older, you get other medical problems. Um, and it is obviously clear that the majority of people in this sort of older sort of category are more at risk. There is no doubt of that. Um, and that's basically due to the fact that the body doesn't have as much reserve to fall back on. Um, and clearly that is something to be to be aware of. But uh, and, and I know that, you, you know, you've, you, it's all coming out more in the press that, you know, we're finding more and more things about this virus. But you know, I, 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 I'm aware that these are now, and I can see it in the hospital just a few days ago, younger people are getting involved. Younger people are being sort of coming in with more problems than we expected with a simple flu, which clearly this isn't. Uh, we are seeing patients who are 40s, uh, you know, in their 30s. They may well have other medical problems. And, and, and what we are trying to find out is what is this medical problem that patients are suffering from that sort of puts them at risk. And, and we just can't find it at the moment. But we are definitely seeing younger players, uh, younger patients, sorry, in, the, in, the, um, in this kind of category who are much more susceptible. But determining who and what, we are just have a little bit at a loss to determine who is going to suffer a very bad consequence as a virus as uh, as those who are not, you know, we just haven't been able to find that. Um, the one thing that I would say is that there is what we call and people are categorizing as a, a cytokine storm. And it is basically the body's reaction to the virus. What stimulates that body's reaction to this virus and this kind of this release of cytokines and various mediators in the body to try and deal with this virus. It is that that we see seems to be the most <clears throat> determinant thing for patients becoming ill. But we still, as I repeat, we haven't been able to determine what type of patients uh, uh, cause that and what type of patients are much more susceptible to that cytokine storm effect. Yeah, and I feel like every week we're learning a bit more information, uh, a lot more stuff are coming out in journals. Um, it's actually quite incredible to see just how quickly information can be put out onto public platforms, uh, The Lancet, a number of other journals as well, um, from people on the front line. You know, I think we, we got the first ICU audit um, in the UK just last week as well, looking at the uh, some some uh, patients admitted to London hospitals. Um there's a lot of talk about PPE and ventilators, um, but what I'm, what, what I think people are failing to see, perhaps a couple of steps ahead, are drugs and uh, staff. So it's all well like converting uh, your surgical arenas into new intensive care wards. It's amazing that we have the Excel Center that's going to become the Nightingale, but people don't realize a ventilation or intubation procedure requires drugs and it maintain you need to have drugs to maintain um, ventilation uh, support as well as well as the staff to look after them is that something that's on your mind at the moment um it's it, yeah, absolutely uh repeat i can't you know we can't sort of um ignore that because despite the fact that we have uh, definitely, you know, when I'm on the wards and I'm going around the hospital trying to see and look at various ill patients and seeing what sort of needs are required, we can clearly see that there is definitely an increase in the number of ventilators that are available uh, for our use. And that includes the invasive ventilators that we use in intensive care, but also those kind of 
those non-invasive ventilators where they put that large sort of mask on the face to try and force air into the body. Um, there is definitely an increase. But what is clear when we talk about medic, you know, if we take medications, for example, um, we noticed that there has been, <laughs> we were recently informed and I, and I kind of, kind of wryly sort of joke about it. Um, they mentioned that there was a lack of oxygen in the hospital. And so oxygen uh, supplies were particularly running low. And you don't even think about these things until it's sort of said to you face to face with the kind of managers. And we are trying to now sort of mitigate for that problem. And, um, you know, if you include oxygen as a medication, we're starting to run out of uh, morphine to sedate patients on the uh, on the um, on the intensive care unit. Uh, because we are just going through things that we have never gone through things before. It is just unfathomable how much medication, how much oxygen that one needs to treat so many ill patients. So it's things that we've never really had to think about, uh, but are only coming to light as a result of these, you know, ever increasing numbers that we're dealing with. And, and you know, and I look at, and you do mention about sort of personnel and everything, uh, you know, going around the wards, it's clearly it's clear to see that everybody is focused on trying to do what they can to try and help um, the patients. Um, but yes, clearly people are <clears throat> uh, very much um, struggling. Uh, they are uh, overwhelmed with the number of patients and the intensity of work that is required with dealing with one patient. But also on top of that, they are getting disheartened, they are getting upset, they're getting emotional, they are already in a very heated environment dealing with these patients. And particularly when you're covered in these uh, personal protective equipment, it's a very, very tiring job. And it's a particularly very, very difficult environment. And, you know, personnel and um, skilled personnel, let's be clear, is, is running short, uh, as we all are, as a result of, you know, all of, some of us, not all of us, are, are being exposed to the virus and are becoming ill as well. Yeah, yeah. In terms of um, the current thinking around uh, medication uses for, for those who are critically ill, uh, and perhaps even in a preventative uh, manner as well, are there any front runners um, like hydroxychloroquine uh, or any other, uh, any antivirus that you guys have perhaps used in a compassionate sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. There have been sort of ideas and thoughts as to what might be beneficial for patients in this case. And I don't think, and this is all, and this is the problem that we have, is that there are suggestions, but there's no concrete evidence to say one is better than the other. Um, and the idea of hydroxychloroquine being sort of purported as being a potential sort of uh, treatment for this problem, it's just hearsay. And unfortunately, there's not enough evidence to put out there to say, right, everybody should be taking this. At the moment, we're trying to deal with patients with antibiotics. I think every COVID-19 patient is getting antibiotics just to make sure that the uh, bacterial side of thing is dealt with. Um, there is still a question about using steroids, I gather, there is still some degree when a patient in particular becomes very uh, unwell, uh, there's been some degree of understanding that maybe steroids might be beneficial in really 
quite septic patients. But again, this is still something that has not been borne out properly with COVID-19 patients. When patients are particularly very, very unwell and they are requiring heavy amounts of oxygen, you know, people are suggesting that we have to improve the blood flow to the lungs. And sometimes there is a suggestion we should use, be using vasodilators or, 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 in, or medications to try and open up those vessels to the lungs. These are all still in, you know, ideas and thoughts, but to really come out with um, uh, an ideal sort of antidote to this is, it, I think the only thing that we can really look forward to is the vaccine. And I think that's just some way, uh, we're some way of getting that, unfortunately. Yeah, I think uh, people are expecting a vaccine to come out in the next couple of months, but actually in reality, when you look at the process of creating a vaccine and making sure that it's safe, etc., it's a, a lot longer than that. So um, uh, for now, it's just kind of each each week as it comes. Uh, I'm conscious that I want to try and get into some perhaps more positive uh, spins on this whole scenario because it is quite dark, uh, uh, for lack of another term. But um, I know this is completely out of everyone's control uh, and, and, and out of anyone's experience of anything in the past, but... Out of all the things that you've done in your career, both professionally and perhaps outside of your profession as well, what do you think has best prepared yourself for this situation that you're currently in? I mean, it's a really good question, actually. Um, I think if you asked most anaesthetists or intensive care consultants, um, I think I don't think we would anyone would be able to sit there and say. Oh, I was quite I was quite comfortable with what was happening. Um, but, um, it, you know, these way out of anybody's understanding and anything that possibly has been, you know, in, in, in previous history because of what we have got to help patients. I think when you talk about other flus and other pandemics, particularly the one at the start of the century, there was nothing like what we can do with patients uh, back then. And, and the ability to, to try and help these patients with various ventilators and, you know, support for hearts. I think that gives us the hope that we can um, help these very, very ill patients. Um, I think if you're going back to the actual question, what sort of has sort of set me, well, sort of prepared me for this, I think in a way... Um, you know, the whole sort of training in anesthesia and in intensive care is to be calm uh, and to take one patient at a time. Uh, we are obviously being exposed to a number of patients at a time because of what's happening around the whole hospital environment. Um, but what one thing, and I think that's probably true for every sort of anesthetically trained consultant, is that you can only help one patient at a time. And I think in given that sort of uh, motto or, you know, that sort of training, um, I feel that, you know, it, it gives a degree of calmness. So while everything else may well be going wrong around you and other patients who may need your help, your ability to try and prioritise who needs your help the most and to try and deal with that one patient by them on their own gives you a degree of, well, this is all I can do. This is what I'm going to do. Once I've dealt with this patient, I'll be able to move on to the next. And that sort of sort of systematic approach with dealing with sort of patients pretty much, I think, has stood 
well, stands us in, in, in a better light when dealing with this sort of catastrophe that is happening across the whole hospitals across the world. So, Yeah, I hope a lot of listeners um, can actually resonate with that and actually perhaps use that in their own lives, uh, whether they're in medicine or outside medicine, because I think that systematic, logical way of thinking through things, whether it's your to-do list, whether it's the constant barrage of news and media outlets about how bad the situation is, whether it's worrying about your parents, you know, focusing on one thing at a time is perhaps the best thing that I've learned out of medicine that I've applied to my general life outside of medicine as well. I, I completely agree. I think it can teach you a lot of things. And, I'm, you know, people have, you know, if somebody's doing business or in the field of accounts, they obviously, you know, learn things from doing what they do. But yes, absolutely, uh, Rupi. The only thing, you know, we have this kind of over grandeur sort of idea of ourselves that we're trying to save the world. But let's be clear, we're trying to save the world, but at one patient at a time. And, and I think that's, you know, and without sounding a bit too flippant about it, but you can only help one patient at a time. And I think, you know, any anaesthetist who has sort of been trained appropriately across the world will know that and, and, and know that they are doing their bit uh, to try and help this, this, yeah, this pandemic. I know you've got two young kids. Um, how, how are you coping, managing, being a parent, being on the front line, doing night shifts? Uh, I mean, it, it must be a real shock to your routine uh, at the moment. Uh, it's, it, yeah, it's a good job I've got a good wife, really. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's... it's uh, it, it is. It is a bit of a sort of a change. I mean, I, I can't, you know, without with everybody's going through this right now, you know, where everything has been wrenched out of your life. Every plan that you had has been taken away from you. Um, you do get a little bit stir crazy. I'm sure Rupi and, uh, you know, your listeners will feel that they're going a bit stir crazy staying indoors. And in some ways, there is some relief going out of the of the house just to try and get some fresh air and going to hospital to get a bit of other people's input. Um, the kids are doing very, very well. Um, and maybe it's because they've sort of uh, been provided with good, you know, good sort of school lessons and things up until today. I think now they've they've all broken up for the Easter holidays. Um, but again, you know, these kind of ideas and I'm trying to talk to them as a, you know, as a doctor, a lot of the time going through these sort of problems that, you know, we've never faced as as kids where they're not allowed to go outside. So I have to try and remember and, you know, try and import some of that knowledge that I have learned as a doctor to my kids. And they are at a stage where they can listen to me. And most of the time they do. But, um, you know, trying to make sure that they do you know, not expose themselves too much to to to, to the TV and the news, uh, that they don't just sit indoors and do whatever is set out for them uh, by school. They do spend time outside, you know, an hour or so. And I do literally lock them outside so that they can't come in, which is a bit kind of, uh, you know, prehistoric. But I do suggest, like, you've got to get outside. You've got to get some fresh air. There's no, you know, when they are at school, they do have break time. So I make sure that they have break time here. So it is trying to maintain those things that they were doing prior to this whole quarantine. And so 
I think they're doing okay. They they probably are talking behind my back, but I feel that a normalizing as best as we definitely can is is the way forward. And a lot of what we learn in medicine, you know, comes to the fore. And I'm sure Rupi, that's the same with you. You know what you've learned. Uh, through medicine, how best to deal with situations like this from a mental and physical point of view? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I started meditating when I was a teenager. My mum and dad taught me how to meditate before my GCSEs to help me with exams. I then started again uh, in the middle of medical school. And then afterwards, when I uh, had my own health issues with atrial fibrillation, um, and it's a practice that I've come back to time and time again in a preventative manner, as well as a uh, a reactive manner and I'm definitely reacting to it now by doing my breath work perhaps five ten minutes a day and then cultivating gratitude as well um, and I, you know if there's any positive to take away from this I think uh, the general public and medics alike will value self-care even more so having had this experience of being locked down and and everything being stripped away for you bare but apart from the bare minimum which is food security and medicine uh, and, and these are the main th- and then obviously connection as well and uh, and um, love and community um so yeah i i think that's something I, i'm coming back to right now and and, and trying to uh, cultivate a sense of calm um and uh, being grateful for everything that i have currently in this moment and, and in the future i think i i think you're right i think after this has occurred and after we have all recovered from it um you, you know people say the place won't be the same um i think in essence, I think there will be a different culture and a different attitude. And I, I completely agree with that. I feel that I can see it now, even, you know, not only, you know, as to towards the NHS staff and, you know, all all that is being said to healthcare workers and everything, but just generally towards each other. I can see definitely there will be a bit more concern about each other, a bit more community spirit and love. I, I You know, I absolutely feel that, and if you include in that one's own personal sort of self-worth and, you know, one's own, you know, physical health, I think we will be a much better, uh, better sort of, you know, culture and society as a result of this, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm coming back to, because I, I was uh, raised a Sikh, my mum and dad are Sikh, and uh, I'm coming back to some of the things that I was reading when I was a kid, actually, about Sikhism and, and um, the oneness of everything uh, and how we're all connected. And I think it sometimes takes huge disasters and living through that to actually remember how connected we all are. And I think this is perhaps the best thing that we could have experienced following Brexit. Um, to put a positive spin on something that's horrific. Yeah, I, you know, it was such a... De- whatever happened and for what, you know, we're not going to... I'm not going to sort of talk politically about it, but it was quite divisive, the whole Brexit thing. And I'm sure, the um, it you know, particularly in the UK, it was a very, uh, you know, it split people down the middle, you know, even in families and things like that. I mean, it's dreadful to think that we need something like a pandemic to make this happen, but it is, it's happening. Um, and maybe the idea that of bringing people together as a result of it, you know, looking at the positive sides, you know, maybe that's what's going to happen. And yeah, I, I just hope it does. And it doesn't just fade away after, you know, a few months after this is all over. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the NHS was incepted after World War II, 1948, yeah. and that was after like a huge upheaval of people's lives. So perhaps some, some benefits will come out of this. Um, I just want to end by asking you, what's the first thing that you're going to do after this is all said and done? Go to the pub. <laughs> <laughs> it's a myth. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I, um, it's, so we normally... That's not really giving the right impression about medics, but we, you know more than most, Rupi. I mean, but you seem to be a very healthy gentleman. But what we used to do, and I'm sure this is, you know, throughout the households, right the way throughout the country and possibly throughout the world, the, what, we used to, like, work all the way during the week. My wife works in, in, a, in a food company. I mean, uh, but... We used to sort of work all the way throughout. The kids used to be at school all the way throughout Friday, you know, up until Friday. And then Friday, we all used to meet all our, you know, we used to, my wife used to pick up the kids and then I used to meet her at the local pub. And it used to be there from about sort of six, 5.30, 6 o'clock after my clinic. And we'd stay there till about 8 o'clock. And it would be the time for all of us just to download what's happened throughout the week. And I would sit there with a, with, a, with a pint. My wife would get a glass or a bottle, depending on how she was feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and we would just chat. And it would be down our local pub in a, in, a, in a friendly environment. And we didn't even have to say to people, like to the barman, what you want, because they knew exactly what we wanted. Yeah. And it was just that environment of just sitting there with seeing people that we knew and just sitting there and downloading. And that... I miss tremendously. Apart from all the other things, it was just that ability just to sort of like even do what we're doing now, talking and stuff like that, but just to be able to go to the local pub and see people. And I think that's true for everyone. I, I'm sure there's many other people with different ideas, but the idea of just being able to do simple things and going back to that, I think that's what everybody's missing. Absolutely. It's that whole idea of connection, whether it's in the pub, whether it's, you know, in person, seeing your parents, meeting up with mates at the park, climbing together, whatever it is. I'll definitely be joining you at the pub, though, for sure. Excellent, Lucy. <laughs> I, I'll buy, you know, I'll buy you one. Don't worry. This one will be on me. <laughs> I'll hold you to that. I'll definitely hold you to that. <laughs> Ruby, what are you going to what are you going to be doing? What is your first plan when this is all over, by the way? What do you plan to do? What I, I genuinely plan to do, uh, and I've promised my girlfriend that would do this, is go on a holiday. Uh, so so we, we definitely have to go on a holiday because we got a few holiday uh, plans cancelled. Um, so we need to definitely go on holiday. And I, I just want to see my parents. Um, I know they're only up in Hampstead, but I, I'm not seeing them, obviously, because I'm working, obviously, in hospital and I don't want to don't want to send them anything. Um my my dad works in hardware so he's uh, an essential worker uh, for people who need like you know boilers and and heating supplies and all that kind of stuff so you know, the, the country still needs to run um so I'm, I'm obviously still worried about him but yeah no i i think a holiday and uh, and see my my family that would be amazing yeah i mean we we do keep in touch with like family i'm sure everybody does via the internet and via skype and all that it's but seeing them in person is something that I think everybody's missing. I'm sure everybody's missing their relatives and loved ones. So, yeah, I think the, 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 the M4 in particular is the one that I will have to travel. will be particularly very busy on the, <laughs> on the day that, it, uh, that we all go, uh, yeah, this quarantine is lifted. But I'm, I'm happy to do that. I'm happy to do that. 
hope you agree Dr. Atom is a breath of fresh air. He's, um, it was very, very gracious of him to give me some of his time. Uh, Like he heard, you know, he's got two young children, um, a family to support um, and doing night shifts or when you haven't been used to doing that for a number of years and going back into an emergency rotor and doing long days you know it really does take a, a toll on your mental health and I think the last thing you want to do is do extra content um, uh, for a podcast so my utmost thanks goes to Dr. Atom. Um, just to summarize I think there's a lot of things that we wish we knew uh, over the last couple of months and um, the situation is rapidly changing and that's why I'm trying to put these podcasts out to give everyone a flavor of what's going on reinstate the message of the importance of staying home and self-isolating and also thinking through things that will keep us positive uh, going forward in in terms of our mindset in terms of coping mechanisms um, not just for frontline staff but but for also but for also for um, those who are not in medicine as well i think there's a lot that we can learn from each other please do catch my guest uh, the london painclinic.com uh, on socials that'll be on the doctorskitchen.com uh, forward slash podcast and uh, please do give us a five-star review if it helps leave us a comment we will try and get through all your questions and uh, sign up to the newsletter where we give you recipes every single week and we give you lifestyle tips particularly to help you get through this scenario um, i really thank you for listening to the end if you are still listening and uh, do give us a five-star review and we will see you here next week Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.